This is a crowd podcast. Before we start, we just want to warn you that this episode contains references to drug abuse, addiction, and suicide. Kurt Cobain doesn't look like the spokesman for an angry generation. For a start, he's drop-dead beautiful. Good cheekbones, clear blue eyes, golden locks. Ignore the stubble and the cardigan, and he could be from a painting in a Renaissance chapel. The most important guy in the scene, all eyes on him. Then Kurt starts picking at his guitar and singing, rasping, like a chainsaw cutting down a tree, smooth as butter yelling, cooing, ugly and beautiful, vulnerable and certain. About the only kid in the world who doesn't see the appeal, that's Kurt. Less than five months after his most famous gig in New York City, when he unplugs his guitar for MTV, Kurt kills himself, all alone in his big old house, his body not found for days. And everyone would ask, what was the point of it all? Of Kurt, his words, his music, the way it all ended. You look at it and think, it's all so futile. Unless that was his point. Almost 30 years after his death, people are still trying to work Kurt out. How someone who so many people adored could have hated himself so much. How his music spoke to so many people when it was so personal and despairing. Whether it was fame that killed him or something else, something inside. This is Death of a Rockstar, Kurt Cobain. Kurt's a happy child, born in early 1967 in a town built on the logging trade. He's curious, creative, he sings, plays piano. His bedroom walls are covered in drawings. But he moves too fast and knows too much for his dad. Don's a car mechanic, doesn't encourage this kid, all differently wired to him. He runs him down, takes a small town's frustrations out on him. Kurt ends up on pills to calm himself down. And when his parents divorce, when he's nine years old, happiness is replaced by shame. He can't face his friends. He wants a proper family, like they have, like he used to. So he withdraws, becomes unruly. What they call in the 70s a problem child. His mum, Wendy, kicks him out and he's forced to live with his dad instead. Having promised Kurt he'd never remarry, Don has a new wife and stepkids. Soon his dad has had enough as well. Kurt's passed between grandparents and uncles before ending up back at his mum's. Wendy's with a guy who beats her up. No wonder Kurt feels rejected and resentful. No wonder he's in pain. Kurt struggles to find kids who like what he does. Aberdeen's a tough working-class town full of lumberjacks and fishermen. It isn't the kind of place where you talk about art and music. When Kurt befriends a gay kid at school, 
he gets beaten up for it. Even Kurt's mom orders him to ditch his new body. Kurt starts smoking weed at 13, shoplifts, gets picked up by the police for spray painting trucks. If there's a Christian sticker on the bumper, he writes, I bought Christ or God is gay. The only class at school he bothers with is art. At 15, he composes a short film. It's called Kurt Commits Bloody Suicide. There's a shot where fake blood pours from his wrists. It's not as if he's keeping anything secret, is it? Then something comes along to save him. A classmate makes him a punk rock mixtape. Now there's something expressing all that anger he feels, the alienation. He listens to it on repeat and thinks, I found my calling. So Kurt quits school two months before graduation. He starts going to gigs in Seattle, 100 miles and a whole different world away. He starts playing himself. The names of his first bands? The Reaganites, Erectum, Fecal Matter, Catchy. Eventually, he settles for Nirvana. When he's asked what it means, he says this, freedom from pain, suffering, and the external world. There's three of them in Nirvana. Kurt on lead vocals and guitar, Chris Novoselic on bass, Chad Channing on drums, but that'll eventually become Dave Grohl. They're soon a fixture in the venues around Seattle and nearby Olympia. Friends say Kurt seems happy. He's having fun. What do they sound like? Bass player Novoselic has a phrase for it. Not Aerosmith. <laughs> so, no hairspray, no makeup, no spandex, no pyrotechnics. Kurt smashes up a lot of guitars, falls through a lot of drum kits and does a lot of screaming. The music is somewhere between punk and heavy metal. Sludgy, grinding, sometimes fast, sometimes slow. What's already known in Seattle as grunge. Most grunge bands say they're not bothered about fame and success. It's all about the music, man. Someone asks Kurt if he's comfortable with being labeled the next big thing. And what does Kurt say? I'm prepared to destroy our careers if it happens. But Nirvana are just too good and Kurt is just too good looking for success to pass them by. Unluckily for Kurt, they're right place, right time. Three years in, they sign with Geffen Records, a proper big record company. Money, power, and suits. So they record their first major label album. It's called Nevermind. Like an angry shrug, a sigh. You know when you hear it. Kurt's mom tries telling him, this is going to change everything. You better buckle up because you're not ready for this. You don't forget the cover once you've seen it. The swimming baby chasing a dollar bill on a fishing hook. How big does it get? It knocks Michael Jackson off the top of the American album charts when Michael Jackson has been the biggest thing in music for a decade. Suddenly, alternative rock isn't alternative anymore. It's mainstream. That's a good thing if you don't like glam metal. Bands like Motley Crue, Poison and Skid Row. Big hair, bad trousers. It's a bad thing if you believe in something. 
Older generations hated flower power and punk, but at least they wanted change. Hippies wanted free love and peace on earth, but punks want to tear everything down. Even glam rockers look like they're having fun. Nirvana just seemed to whine an awful lot. There's a big piece in Newsweek. Here's the killer line. Grunge is what happens when children of divorce get their hands on guitars. It's goodbye big themes, goodbye politics. It's introspection now. Not change the world, but obsessing about yourself, about alienation and futility. Smells Like Teen Spirit is the lead single. Goes huge everywhere. A video like nothing you've seen before. Set in a basement, dark, the patches of light all yellow and smoky. Kids moshing, cheerleaders waving pom-poms. Kurt and his golden hair on his blue guitar. You can feel the anger, the despair. With Kurt, you feel you're connecting to the real person, not an image. Between you and him, there's nothing. It's heart to heart, it's real. It speaks to millions, that's the thing. Kurt is everybody, but thinks he's a nobody. After Nirvana, other Seattle bands like Pearl Jam and Soundgarden also make it huge. Big hair and spandex disappear almost overnight. Now, the hip bands wear what the kids wear mostly flannel shirts and frayed cardigans, and that starts to kill it. In Seattle clubs, the kids think grunge is dead, reckon it died the minute Nirvana went mainstream. Kurt? He hates being labelled the voice of a jilted generation, almost as much as he hates being labelled a grunge act. As far as he's concerned, his words aren't gospel. He's singing about his own problems. Breakups, bad relationships, family strife, fame, depression, drug addiction. Nobody else's. And while some of it's sincere, some of it's ironic. But it's getting worse. He takes heroin for the first time when he's 20. Says it masks the pain of a mysterious stomach ailment. Friends reckon he has stomach pains because of the heroin. Whatever the truth, Kurt is drawn to the darkness. His bandmates know. He's just into getting fucked up. Kurt hates being in the biggest band in the world. Thinks success makes him less authentic. He hates attention and acclaim. He tells reporters, says, when you're in the public eye, you have no choice but to be raped over and over again. He hates criticism hates journalists asking him about his private life and the meaning of his music, hates that squares listen to Nevermind in their SUVs and rednecks listen to it in their trucks. But you want to know the really crazy part? The one thing he loves might be his biggest problem of all. Right, we need to have a quick ad break, but I'll be back in a moment to tell you all about that relationship. Kurt and Courtney. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, it's Tom Fordyce here. I'm one of the writers on Death of a Rockstar, and I do hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. 
Now, we all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people I wrote about for this series absolutely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Rockstar listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. That's betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. Welcome back to Death of a Rockstar. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Kurt meets Courtney Love, actor, singer, with a band called Hole in 1989 or 1990. Nobody knows for sure. Kurt's whacked on heroin and so is Courtney. She's deep into him straight away. Thinks he's cute. Thinks part of the charm is he doesn't know he's better looking than Brad Pitt. Kurt wants a stable home with Courtney, but he also wants to smash everything up. Always those contradictions. A friend tells Courtney, if you marry Kurt, it'll destroy your life. And what happens? A couple of years in, they get hitched. Nirvana don't go on tour to support their album like most bands would. Instead, Kurt bums around with Courtney, taking drugs, painting, filming home videos. Kurt wears Courtney's dresses. Courtney flashes her breasts. Sounds romantic. Here's how one friend describes it. It has two melodorous rock and roll miscreants deeply fouling an unsuspecting apartment. The most famous frontman in the world is living like he has nothing. But he doesn't always act like a man who's not bothered about money. He buys a big house in Seattle, overlooking Lake Washington. His neighbors are the CEOs of Boeing and Microsoft. Kurt demands and gets 75% of Nirvana's writing royalties, which almost breaks up the band. But despite it all, Kurt's still not happy. When Courtney gets pregnant, the media gets wind she's still doing heroin. When Nirvana headline Reading Festival, Kurt gets tens of thousands of fans to repeat after him, Courtney, we love you. That's how warped rock and roll is. They have a daughter, Frances Bean. Fatherhood doesn't change Kurt much. He tells his mum he's addicted to the needle prick and he keeps swinging between hating the life of a rock star and needing to be one. 
Nirvana's third album, In Utero, is a massive hit with fans and critics. Starker and spearer than Nevermind, but with more than enough hooks. It includes the song, Rape Me, which isn't a metaphor. The song, I Hate Myself and Want to Die, didn't make the cut. Kurt claims it was a joke. It doesn't sound like one. In 1993, Kurt visits the writer, William Burroughs, a man who's taken plenty of drugs, lived through a lot of chaos, and felt a lot of heartache. Burroughs looks at Kurt and thinks, there's something wrong with that boy. He frowns for no good reason. At the MTV Unplugged gig in New York, Kurt doesn't look like a man who wants to die. He looks almost shiny. But under that comfy cardigan, he's a bag of bones and covered in sores. Instead of the big hits, Nirvana play mainly covers. The one they love most is the old blues number, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Kurt strains and Kurt rasps. You can hear the betrayal in his voice. Kurt's just turned 27 when he almost dies in a hotel room in Rome after taking a cocktail of champagne and rohypno. He's become a tragic rock and roll cliche. It's not his first near-death experience, but it might be his first suicide attempt. Kurt thinks Courtney's been cheating on him. Maybe she has, maybe she hasn't. A few years earlier, the press were calling Kurt and Courtney the new John and Yoko. Now, they're the new Sid and Nancy. It's not a compliment. In the late 70s, the Sex Pistols' Sid Vicious may or may not have killed his girlfriend, Nancy Spongen. A few months later, Sid died of a heroin overdose. Back in Seattle, the police get a call from Courtney. Kurtz locked himself in a room with a shotgun. When the police turn up, Courtney says Kurt was threatening to shoot himself. Kurt says he was trying to hide from Courtney. Courtney and some friends stage an intervention. Courtney threatens to leave him if he doesn't go to rehab. Chris Novoselic threatens to break up the band. After a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth, Kurt agrees. But before heading to LA, he persuades a friend to buy him a shotgun and a box of ammunition. It's the 1st of April 1994. Kurt spends most of the day playing with his daughter Frances. He calls Courtney from the detox center, tells her he loves her. That evening, he steps outside for a cigarette, jumps over a wall and disappears. A few days later, Kurt's mom files a missing persons report. Friends, family, Seattle police and private investigators seek her here, seek her there, seek her almost everywhere. The one place no one thinks to look is his house. On the morning of the 8th of April 1994, just before 9am, an electrician arrives at 171 Lake Washington Boulevard to install a security system. He finds Kurt in a greenhouse above the garage. There's a shotgun laid across his chest. Depending on which reports you want to believe, there are few visible signs of trauma or he's almost unrecognizable. Either way, he's definitely dead. 
the most famous rock star in the world, has been missing for a week. He's been dead for two and a half days. Police record that on or before the afternoon of the 5th of April, Kurt propped a stall against the greenhouse door, removed his hunter's hat, and fished some heroin from an old cigar box. He tossed his wallet on the floor, maybe to help the police identify him, and scribbled a farewell note. Then he dragged the chair towards a window overlooking Lake Washington and picked up his shotgun. Kurt's mom first hears about his death on the radio. He's 27, just like the other rock gods who died too young. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Brian Jones and Jim Morrison. She says, I told him not to join that stupid club. Two days after Kurt's body is discovered, there's a vigil in Seattle. 7,000 people turn up. There's a ritual burning of flannel shirts. Courtney gets fans to chant, fuck you, Kurt. She also reads excerpts of his suicide note. After one particularly self-pitying section, Courtney stops and screams, oh, shut up. Cynics say Kurt's suicide note is as narcissistic as his lyrics. There's nothing about the world's most pressing issues just a lot about him. Others say it speaks for millions of self-loathing Generation Xers who share his suffering. Here's what he writes. Since the age of seven, I've become hateful towards all humans. He says, I have a goddess of a wife who sweats ambition and empathy and a daughter who reminds me too much of what I used to be, full of love and joy. I can't stand the thought of Francis becoming the miserable, self-destructive death rocker I've become. I don't have the passion anymore. Please keep going, Courtney, for Frances, for her life, which will be so much happier without me. Are you still wondering what it all meant? What exactly killed him? There's some who tell you Kurt was ruined by fame, that Kurt was a delicate soul chewed up by the corporate machine. There's an easy stereotype if you want it. That rock and roll staple, tortured genius. The truth might be less poetic. Turns out Kurt had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder as a kid, which he left untreated. Substance abuse was rampant in the Cobain family. Two of Kurt's male relatives also killed themselves with guns. Like Kurt, they suffered with low self-esteem and mental illness. So, there's another idea. Maybe Kurt's success extended his life, rather than curtailed it. If he hadn't been in the right place at the right time, and quite so beautiful, maybe Kurt would have died earlier and far less loved. Just another humdrum Cobain, whose life felt too difficult to go on. And maybe all that stuff about him being the voice of a disaffected generation was a myth too. Not everyone who listened to Nirvana was a slacker and a loner in a dead-end job, struggling to fit in. They sold far too many records, tens of millions for that to be true. Most people hardly noticed Kurt was in pain. As far as they were concerned, Nirvana just made a beautiful racket, which is most rock bands' ultimate ambition. 
their only reason for being. So one more question. When you think about all Kurt Cobain was, all he became, would he have been the same today? Being that real, laying it all out there. The heroine, the junkie, pregnant girlfriend, singing songs about suicide, abortion and rape. Not playing the game, you decide. He wasn't much of a role model. He made a lot of people feel unsettled. They sensed his darkness, felt it all around them. But maybe that's why people insist he was the last great rock star who died like the last great rock star should, young and violently. That, without all those jagged, dirty edges, being great's not possible. Kurt Cobain hated himself and wanted to die, but he made more people happy than he made miserable. There's nothing futile about that, even if he didn't mean for it to happen. If you've been affected by any of the issues we spoke about in this podcast or are worried about someone you love, please call the Samaritans at 116123. Someone will always be there to listen, day or night, and it's free for all UK phone numbers. Or go to crowdnetwork.co.uk forward slash helplines to find a list of people you can go to for help. This episode of Death of a Rockstar was written by Ben Durs. It was performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy. It was edited by Crawford Blair. For research, we watched the 2015 documentary montage of Heck, which some people loved and others thought was riddled with lies. We also read articles in the following publications, Rolling Stone, The Guardian, The Los Angeles Times, The Seattle Times, Newsweek, Variety, This Recording, A Healthy Me, Talk House, and Punk Fanzine, Flipside. The music we used is from our partner's BMG production music. But if you want to listen to some Nirvana, try Aneurysm first. We think it's one of their best, but stashed rather typically away as a B-side. Then go for Heart Shaped Box. It's post-fame Kurt addressing the commodified teenage angst of the grunge scene in a darkly humorous way. And finally, try On A Plane. It's got very personal lyrics sung by a weary sounding Kurt and lovely backing vocals from Dave. And if you want another podcast instead, go and find our Death of a Film Star series and start with the episode about Heath Ledger. Just search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. Thank you for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.